Do you have a book that means something special to you? Maybe you read it at a certain time in your life and it gave you strength or answers. Maybe it was a gift from someone important to you or an inheritance. Books are special in our lives in particular ways. They mean something specific. 400 years ago, books were a fairly new thing. Printed books were, at least. And they meant something specific to their owners, too. But what they meant was, in many ways, much different from what they mean today. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. Two authors have new books out right now on the subject of books. Specifically, they've both separately taken a look at what having a book meant to people in Shakespeare's time. One, by Australian writer Stuart Kells, is called Shakespeare's Library. It speculates on what book Shakespeare might have owned, and it also tells some intriguing stories about people over the years who've claimed either to have found the library or to have owned pieces of it. The other book is called Shakespeare's First Reader, It's by Cambridge University professor Jason Scott Warren, and it dissects the library of Richard Stoneley, an Elizabethan bureaucrat who was the first person we know of to buy a printed book written by Shakespeare. On June 12, 1593, he picked up a copy of Shakespeare's racy poem, Venus and Adonis. We felt that taken together, Stoneley's actual library and stories of Shakespeare's imaginary one offer a fascinating window into the sociology of people living at the time when Shakespeare's plays were first being performed. We invited Jason and Stuart into our studios in Melbourne and Cambridge to tell us what they know. We call this podcast, Give Me Some Ink and Paper. Stuart Kells and Jason Scott Warren are interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Well, to get a fix on just how different the world of reading and books was in Shakespeare's time, why don't we start with a specific moment? So let's say we're in the Globe Theater and we're watching Julius Caesar. So it's around 1599. In this audience, who would have been able to read? And I'll start with you, Jason. That's a really interesting and a very vexed question because all the statistics we have relating to literacy in this period are are really unreliable. Most of our evidence for literacy comes from signatures. Do people, when they're signing legal documents, do they sign their names or do they just uh, make a mark? Do they just make a cross or some other mark? Um, And using those kinds of evidence, historians have come up with some statistics. So in the mid-17th century, one statistic is that 70% of men and 90% of women are illiterate. Those are Um, really high numbers. I hadn't expected that. Well, yeah, exactly. It is quite uh, startling, isn't it? However, historians have, since those figures were produced, said again and again that they are not really remotely trustworthy um, because... The ability to sign is not the same as the ability to read. We know that reading and writing were taught separately in this period, and reading was taught first. So there might be a lot of people who could read, but who couldn't write, who weren't confident with writing, who would prefer Mm. to sign with a mark. Well, okay. And of these people, though, who were able to read, how many would have owned books? And printed books, they're still kind of a new thing, right, Stuart? Well, they've been around for 150 years. um, But yeah, they were growing in uh, popularity and access and, and... People were increasingly holding private libraries. But a 
an average private library at the latter part of the 16th century would only still be um, maybe in the dozens of books, and, and a largish private library may only be a few hundred books. But yeah, there was a large market for, for printed books, and things like uh, play scripts would sell for maybe sixpence, uh, and so most people on sort of middle income would be able to afford them. And we have all sorts of prejudices about how we think about how people use books. Reading generally is a private experience now. Um, but in those days, book ownership, book use, reading and inscribing in books were all uh, social experiences as well and collective experiences. So people would read books aloud. Um, they would circulate books either in manuscript or printed books. And they would be certain copies would be well known for the erudition and the quality of the annotations that were adding to the text. Um, so writing in a book wasn't just a private experience, it was a, it was a public act. And on the less wealthy end of the spectrum, most people, what would they own what, just a Bible? One, two books? Going to the theatre would be cheaper than buying a book. So a theatre ticket might be a penny to stand in the yard. Um, a very cheap book might be, uh, as I said, around sixpence. But a larger book like a Bible might be more like a pound. Well, do we have any sense, Stuart, of what kind of books or library playwrights like Shakespeare had? We have a very good sense of the kinds of books that Shakespeare had access to. So for to produce a play, Shakespeare would have used prior play scripts. Uh, we know that a lot of his um, canonical plays drew content from earlier plays, but also uh, he was using historical content from um, things like Hollinshead's Chronicles. He was drawing from contemporary uh, stories and novels. Um, he was drawing from uh, translations of classical and continental works. And so he was a real magpie. He drew content from all sorts of different sources. So you can picture his own library as being a combination of major reference works, uh, more ephemeral play scripts, writing guides and grammars. Uh, presumably he would have had uh, manuscripts of his own poems and plays, um, but very much a, a working library. So you can picture him marking up texts um, and, um, and uh, adapting and um, borrowing content. And how... I mean, just to be clear, no one has ever found Shakespeare's library. So hasn't there been a lot of speculation and, and the kind of bogus rumor mongering around mm. his library that we've seen with, you know, so many of the fake or questionable Shakespeare relics and artifacts? I imagine his library has gotten the same treatment. Exactly. Yeah, the idea of Shakespeare's library is a bit like the Templar treasure or, you know, um, some sort of uh, Indiana Jones style goal. Um, people searching for books from Shakespeare's library and imagining what it would be like. But also there were Shakespearean frauds going back even to his lifetime. And that included fake association copies, books being published over his name that he didn't write. It even included uh, in the 18th century uh, an elaborate fraud by the Ireland family that, that went so far as to even produce a catalogue of Shakespeare's own library. So not just <laughs> books from the library, but a full catalogue. Taking it um, to the next level, taking it to 11. Mm, yes, that's right. <laughs> and what are these people who are extrapolating uh, what Shakespeare's library, or just making it up out of whole cloth, uh, must have been like? What do they look to in his plays? 
that give, and maybe I should ask this, what do you look to in Shakespeare's plays that give a sense of what his library might have been since he appropriated so much, but he also, um, in many cases, he wrote about books and even book binding, Mm. right? That's right. He uses all sorts of um, metaphors about books. So he talks about, he uses printing terms. So he's very familiar with the processes of bookmaking. Um, you, you can imagine that he was engaging with printer publishers and possibly uh, through people like Richard Field, who was a, a um, contemporary of his from the same part of England, who was a very important printer publisher. Shakespeare engaging with people like that to source materials for his plays and for the poems. Can you give us some examples? Well, in The Tempest, he talks about um, my library. He values his library more than his dukedom, I think. Um, In Romeo and Juliet, uh, I think there's a reference to the perfect lover lacking only a binding. Um, There's references all the way through the sonnets to printing terms, to even to um, different coloured inks and different styles of writing. The, the physicality of books permeates the plays and it permeates the poems. I do want to turn back to the general idea of how people treated books and thought about books uh, in general. And Jason, let me turn to you for that. How did people think about collecting books in this period? What was the goal of assembling a library? You know, was it like now the kind of the soul, the hunt and, and also just love of knowledge, status? I, yeah, certainly status, yeah. I, I think in this period, I mean, the most substantial libraries that we know about are, there's a sense of the divisions of knowledge, the way that the world is carved up into um, theology and medicine and law and, and spheres of knowledge which uh, need to be populated by extremely weighty Latin tomes. Uh, so you have this enormous world of knowledge which the printing press is opening up and people are, are actually trying to, they're going to lengths to find out what's out there. They're buying book catalogues and they are trying to put together sometimes very ambitious libraries. And and in the process, I think they're also facing quite a lot of the things that they're really reading. Um, so they are deliberately obscuring all of the racy romances that they're probably also reading. Um, oh, what? So do you find those squirreled away somewhere? The erotica? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you find, you know, if you chance upon a more uh, informal kind of catalogue, so that um, the catalogue that, that I've been working on in relation to Richard Stoneley over the last few years, which actually is not really a book catalogue, it's an inventory uh, of books which were priced up for sale when Stoneley was declared bankrupt. And actually there, because you don't have that neat, tidy organisation, you don't have that sense of someone who is priding themselves on their beautiful library catalogue. Uh, there you can see a lot more of the interesting material that's actually circulating, uh, which they often weren't admitting to when they got their secretary to draw up their library catalogues. I have to ask you, Richard Stoneley, we've gotten to this part of the conversation about which you've written a whole book about this man and his library. Yeah. Who was he, Richard Stoneley? So Richard Stoneley is a, an Elizabethan civil servant. He lands his job actually at the beginning of Mary Tudor's reign. So 1554, he gets this job and it's kind of a job for life in the Elizabethan exchequer as a teller. So someone who is taking in, I guess, tax revenue and giving out money for people to go and fight wars and uh, 
Uh, and, and we know about him just from some account books which survive in the Folger Shakespeare Library. These three volumes of accounts survive for the 1580s and 1590s. And from this extraordinary inventory that's drawn up when, uh, at the end of his career, he is ignominiously found guilty of embezzling an enormous sum of money. Uh, and the last, <laughs> oh, so the you last lucked ac- out as an academic, well, it as is an historian, it is an right? That this guy thing, was such yeah. a crook. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then the last volume of accounts is written from the Fleet Prison. So the first two volumes are full of his shopping, uh, including quite a lot of book buying. And he really uh, kept track of everything, right? And he keeps track of everything. You know, if you're keeping accounts in this period, you have to get it right down to the last penny. But then in the last volume, he's in prison, so he's not spending very much money at all. Um, and there are very few books. And what's so remarkable about his library? Um, I mean, I guess that the reason why it's in the Folger Shakespeare Library is simply because there's this entry for buying Venus and Adonis uh, in 1593. So he becomes the first recorded purchaser of a printed book by Shakespeare. and Shakespeare's uh, dirty book. So, so, yeah, exactly. Yes, quite. Yeah. And... Um, and then the inventory then shows you that this is being absorbed into a really rich uh, a collection which actually has quite a lot of the most prestigious books of the period in it. So he's buying books showing you all the costumes that people wear in different countries. He's buying the first atlases. He's buying uh, extraordinary illustrated books depicting what goes on in the civil wars in France. Uh, so what's nice about it is it allows you to really get a sense of what's really going on in book buying and reading in the period. Yeah, and it's really interesting how both of you found that people personalized their books and the, in this mm. era. And, and of course, we write our names in our books, so, so we'll get them back when they go, go missing. But how did people personalize their books in this time, and why did they do it? Well, um, one thing that's very distinctive about books in this period is that they're usually sold unbound. Um, and, but when you're in the process of binding, that's a chance to uh, personalise the book. So uh, a lot of the wealthier collectors in this period will use the binding to advertise their status. They'll include a coat of arms in the binding. Then people in this period do very often sign their books, uh, sometimes in very elaborate ways. You get people who sign their books over and over again, um, perhaps because they're paranoid about theft, but also I think often because they are kind of trying out uh, their identity in the book. They are treating the book as a sort of autobiographical space in which they're asserting themselves. And then sometimes they'll play little kind of uh, ownership games. So they'll write a, a little charm or a poem which, you know, tells you that if you steal the book, you're going to uh, be hanged um, or that, you know, some kind of woe is going to come to you. Um, or that's a good idea. I'm going to start doing yeah. that in my books. <laughs> I think those those charms are still very useful, yeah. And uh, sometimes they'll do something which is very strange, which is that they'll get other people to witness the fact that they own the book. What? Um, like witnessing and, like witnessing your marriage? That's... Yeah, I think so. It's a kind of quasi-legal thing. But sometimes it is also used playfully. So you get kind of multiple witnessings and you you can't actually tell from the inscriptions who actually owns this book because everyone seems to own it and everyone is witnessing it. Uh, it's a shared property. 
Well, we have this idea uh, very much now, and, and it dates from the 18th and 19th centuries, of the bibliophile, someone who, who loves pristine copies and puts them neatly on their shelves. Those sorts of concepts didn't really exist in the 16th century. Um, books were very much objects in use. London was, a, um, in large part, a, a um, dangerous, grimy place for a lot of people. And so the, the idea of having this sort of pristine space for these finely bound books very, very few people had that possibility. So you see copies that have uh, food stains or, or you hear stories about people um, you know, recycling them. So they, use the, they have the ephemeral play scripts, they read the plays, they enjoy them, and then they use the paper for food wrapping or for other personal purposes that we won't go into. And the, the idea that we have of the bibliophile and also the distinctions we make between literary and non-literary activities, they're later concepts than, than the 16th century. And Jason, you write about another common thing that readers did back then called commonplacing. W- what is commonplacing? Commonplacing is a very long-established practice of reading where you're essentially breaking the text down into constituent parts. So you're, you're reading, ideally you're reading everything that's ever been written. <laughs> you're flitting through the whole garden of literature and you are on the lookout for for little extracts, which you can then take away to your commonplace book, which is a book, a paper book, where you have written headings, death, love, God, angels, whatever it may be. And when you find a quotation which is pertinent to one of those headings, you copy it down under that heading in your commonplace book. As you're reading, you're always thinking, you know, what is there there that I can take away and it's a it's a it's it's often a physical book but it's also a mental box so you're compiling this book but you're doing so because you're trying to stock your mind um so it's like highlighting it's kind of it's like highlighting but it's also kind of reorganizing or, or it's a it's a process of reorganization and it's a process of reform, reforming as well because in the process of taking this away and storing it in your mind, what you're doing is you're filling yourself up with resources for your own speech and for your own composition, for your own writing. So as you're reading, you're on the lookout for passages which uh, have a kind of general applicability, which can go under a particular heading. And these then, when you yourself have to speak on that subject, when, or when you have to think about that subject, you will then be able to use these commonplaces uh, um, but it's really interesting then if you take that, if, you, if you're aware of that reading practice and how widespread it was, and then you go away to the writers of the 16th and 17th centuries and you think about the ways in which they write, you can very often see that they're appealing to that mode of reading. So you can see that they're actually playing to the reader's desire for commonplaces. Um, it's a process of textual recycling. Well, yeah, and there, this is such a fluid. Books were so fluid, and as you say, you're buying just leaves of paper often, nothing bound. This other common practice of the time, and I don't know how to pronounce it, is uh, is it samalbande? What what is samalbande? Yeah, so the samalband, the kind of the the gathering of books bound together. So essentially, if you're buying books unbound, you often have a choice about how you're going to put them together with other books. And if you've got a flimsy book like a play, you're very often going to need various other books to to thicken it out. Um, so you find people putting books together in this period, sometimes thematic compilations, 
So uh, one book we have in the Cambridge University Library is a collection of three music books, a book on dancing, uh, books on, on composition, uh, musical composition, which was owned by an Elizabethan court musician. And he's kind of bound them together in a very fancy binding with his name on the front. So you're making and, your own personal anthology. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of asserting that certain books belong together sometimes. Uh, yeah, so just exploiting the possibilities of creativity that the book market is offering you. So when we think about the quarto, the quartos, we, we know that people bought these quarto editions of Shakespeare's plays. Are these examples of Samelband? So we know that people do create compilations of plays in this period. And this is quite, it's, it's an important issue because it bears on the question of like, what is the status of a play? It is popular entertainment and I guess the snootier members of society, you know, might well have read plays, but then disposed of them. But so then it matters that some people do actually start binding plays together. They start collecting bundles of plays. They start putting them together in compilations, which suggests that they have this appreciation for uh, drama as a kind of literary medium, that they're starting to see that although this is racy and popular, it also has a claim to a certain kind of status and that perhaps literature in English could be the equal of literature in Latin or Greek and it could be worthy of preservation. So that's the kind of band you get. Stuart, anything you'd like to add? Yes. Going back to that point around uh, how books were personalised, we're talking a lot about provenance and, and the story that we can read from ownership marks and what we can learn from that. But between the moment we're talking about and now, there are all sorts of other practices around book use and book ownership that make tracing those threads really difficult. Uh, and an example of that is practices uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries where bibliophiles would have books rebound they would have their books washed. So literally, they'd take the book apart and put the individual leaves in a solution to remove earlier inks and ownership marks except for the printed text. And even they would cut early books up and paste them into other books. So the examples we have of early printed books that have an identifiable provenance are very precious. My mind is blown way back when you said they washed their books. I mean, I, mm. I'm thinking just this puts the provenance and, and Shakespeare just figuring out what did Shakespeare write and what didn't he in such a different context. These books are so mutable. How can we trace anything? Yes. And think about the materials that the books are made from. So our modern paper has a lot of wood pulp in it and it has all sorts of chemicals in it and it's very um, fragile. But the paper from this era, uh, it's made from rags. It's very robust. Books from that period on good quality paper actually last a lot longer than our books today. So it's quite possible to take them apart, unpick the sewing, uh, open up the signatures and lay them out in a solution, wash them and then put them back together. And you see in catalogue uh, entries, books being described as badly washed or unwashed, depending on how much um, they've gone back to a very pure white. Sometimes they can be overwashed. So, you know, all these things are quite confronting for modern uh, bibliophiles and, and um, people interested in bibliography because of the importance of provenance and early traces. So there's that whole thread. And there's another thread which is about um, the dust and the individual traces of readers left behind in books. So now we're getting to the point where in, with, with DNA science and that kind of thing, what we used to think of as the, the annoying dust in rare books 
you can actually study that dust and learn stories, learn learn facts and information about you know who owned the books, when, in what way were they made. Um, so there's all sorts of different kinds of layers of data and history that have been lost in lots of the ways that books were treated, but that are still available for, for, for other books to study. Oh, that's so wild. And I want to pick up on something that we were talking about um, glancingly earlier, cataloging books. And Jason, you've written a good bit about a book called Monsell's Catalog. What was it and why did people feel the need to write a catalog of existing books anyway? Um, well, I, there was a real sense that there was an increasing flood of books in the period, and people were beginning to be alarmed. Um, and So it was and getting out of you, control, that kind of thing? It's getting out of control, yeah, and how are you going to deal with that? And also, how are you going to stop things getting lost, you know? So how are you going to stop books that, are, that were produced from just kind of disappearing from view because you don't have any mechanism for keeping track of them? You don't have any um, public libraries that you can go to to find out what's out there. Right, and people so keep think, ripping them apart and washing them exactly. and putting them back together. <laughs> so, there's, so there's this real question about uh, how you're going to start getting knowledge of and control over this world of print. Uh, and so when Maunsell publishes his catalogue of English books, he's starting to, he's, he's wanting to, to gather up all of the lost sheep, all of the things which have been printed and then just forgotten about. Um, people are starting to want to come to grips with the world of print, but it's very, very hard to do that. And you realise that there has to be this extraordinary kind of meta discourse around the book world. Uh, you know, it's not enough just to have the books. You also have to have the books about the books, the books listing the books. You have to have bibliographies of bibliographies of bibliographies. Wow. Um, and, and so we're just at the beginning of that process. And Stonely, uh, the person that, that uh, you've written a whole book about, uh, had this library and had his catalogues of what was in the library and kept track of them. And, and he's a collector and people are collecting at this time. So how did people think about the value of the books that they were collecting and the different editions back then? I mean, now we value the older edition over the newer. But uh, And Stuart, I should ask you this, were first editions more or less valuable or desirable than newer ones? Very much the primacy of firstness, uh, which we see now in book collecting, that's a much later concept. So in the 16th century and the early part of the 17th century, when a new edition came out, there was a sense that it would be an improvement. So the first folio is a good example. Shakespeare's uh, plays come out in a collected edition in 1623. The Bodleian uh, Library had their copy and others, other people had their copies. And then when a later edition comes out, the and can let that copy go and get a new one. Um, wasn't, I think, until the start of the 20th century that they were able to buy back that exact copy. So yes, there was a sense that you could improve books and that, that there wasn't that fetishization of the, um, the first edition. Well, but you, you why? Talk... Is it, I mean, is it because books were te their technology? I mean, and I want the latest iPhone, not the old one. You know, I want the new mm. hotness. Is that how people view books? Yes, and it's all sorts of different ideas of um, content and authorship as well. The it was it was very much more about being up to date. Um, the idea of the celebrity author, in large part, that's a later 
idea. And so the idea of collecting Shakespearean manuscripts and the Shakespeare first edition as it comes off the press, those sorts of things weren't in people's minds. I'm still thinking about the Bodleian tossing its first <laughs> folio. <laughs> I mean... Very embarrassing. Again, it makes me, uh, it makes me think of, of uh, another question I wanted to ask, which is what tended to happen to books when people died in this period? Well, books were in large part valuable objects, especially if you had your books bound and that kind of thing. There would have been an inventory or a codicil attached to the will that would have had specific bequests. Uh, And then there are certainly examples at that time where people would have a listing of their possessions and they would say, yeah, my diamond ring goes to my son-in-law and my best petticoat goes to my daughter. And there's um, definitely a, a sense that books were valuable and worthy of of calling out as an asset. I thought that was a great summary. I mean, I think that often people are trying to replicate themselves when they pass on their books. So they um, very often, they, you know, if, if it's a, a gentleman, he'll have a son that he wants to pass his books onto. If it's someone in a profession or a trade, they will kind of specify the books which belong to their trade and say, this is going to this son. There's a kind of desire to Uh, think about the utility of books that one owns and how that utility might continue to function. Um, I think, I I guess it depends, you know, as people become more self-conscious about their books as collections, they do start to want to specify in wills that the collection should stay together. Um, And sometimes they make quite elaborate provisions for doing that. Yeah. And given that, Stuart, what do you think happened to Shakespeare's books? Um, In Shakespeare's case, there are no books mentioned in his will, um, but it's speculation and and it's plausible that there would have been an inventory or a codicil attached to the will that would have had specific bequests. There's also uh, general references in wills to, um, I leave my goods and chattels or my movable chattels to my wife, uh, those kinds of things. Um, In Shakespeare's case, it seems like most of his library stayed in his home uh, in New Place because there's a reference about um, 20 years after his death, there's a reference to New Place having a study of books. So it seems like the books passed to his daughter, Susanna, and her husband, and then they were dispersed after that uh, into all of these collections that we've touched on. Okay, true confessions here. I write in my books. I write a lot in my books, and it's in fact how I do interviews. I'll I'll write questions in the margins of books, and I find it really useful because then you have the source material right there. You have the question. You have that first impulse of, you know, curiosity about something. Does studying this make either one of you treat your books differently? Well, we're both scandalised that you may have written our books. <laughs> I've completely uh, it's destroyed. Just, just ruined, your ruined, book. ruined the atmosphere. <laughs> uh, I, I personally, looking at looking at writers' libraries and how writers have engaged with their texts is incredibly interesting and important. So, writers like Virginia Woolf, um, Charles Darwin, Samuel Johnson um, wrote in their books or personalised their books in all sorts of different ways, including the bindings. So, being able to look back 
uh, and read along with people uh, about how they've engaged with texts is incredibly important. So in the future, when people are studying uh, the people in this conversation, um, at, at least oh, in one example... Of which they surely will. <laughs> of course. They definitely will. Uh, they'll, be able, they'll be able to read along with you and, and, and understand your reactions. So um, yeah, on the one hand, as bibliophiles, we're appalled, uh, but as scholars, we can see the value in it. <laughs> I think I think as a scholar you become aware both that thousands and thousands of books you know have been destroyed but then these books which survive have survived in a kind of extraordinary way so I often think when I'm touching a book with somebody's notes in it or with somebody's signature in it you know this is probably the only thing this person owned which survives today the the uh, books which belong to sometimes uh, unknown readers readers who would otherwise leave no trace they're tremendously involving engaging objects and um and i guess it what it does is it makes you very self-conscious as an annotator it makes you think you know this thing could hang around a lot longer than i than i want it to that's really not uh, what i want to be when i'm yeah i better be careful what i write but it does make me want to take an exacto knife to my books and rearrange them (laughs) and, and have have them be in conversation with each other yeah, absolutely. I think one should definitely do that and be very aware of, you know, where in your house are you putting this book or that book and what's it uh, in conversation with. I think it's a very fascinating process. Yeah, and one that we know too little about. Okay, I'm going to splice your two books, all of your books together now. <laughs> <laughs> it has been so much fun talking with you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Likewise, thank you. Stuart Kells is the author of, among other books, Penguin and the Lane Brothers, A History of Penguin Publishing, and a love letter to libraries, their makers and protectors, titled The Library, A Catalog of Wonders. His latest book, Shakespeare's Library, Unlocking the Greatest Mystery in Literature, was published in the U.S. by Counterpoint in 2019. Dr. Jason Scott Warren is a college lecturer and director of studies in English at Cambridge University in England. His latest book is Shakespeare's First Reader, The Paper Trails of Richard Stoneley. It was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2019. Stuart and Jason were interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Give Me Some Ink and Paper, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, Roger Chatterton at Kite Recording Studio in Cambridge, England, and Simon Knight in the recording studio at La Trobe University's College of Arts, Social Sciences, and Commerce in Melbourne, Australia. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, and if you're looking for a way to let other people know about it, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really is the best way to help. Thank you so much. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Michael Whitmore.